you would please stand. We'll read together Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 17. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful, again, for the opportunity together and to proclaim the truth of your word this morning. Thank you for the truth of the spiritual provision you've made for us in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that we would be aware, attentive, and intentional in appropriating the provision that you have made for us, that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ as you have commanded, that we would walk in the truth of his sufficiency each and every day. And Father, regardless of the battles that rage about us, the conflict against the gospel, against the faith, against our Savior, that we would stand steadfast and certain upon he who is the anchor of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified and honored in and through every moment of our lives which we live. Lord, help us as you would continue to teach us, help us by your grace to truly live lives submitted unto you. And Father, may it be that the very words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Again, we are coming to the conclusion of this portion of the epistle of Paul to the church at Ephesus concerning this matter of the spiritual war in which we are all engaged and the armor that God has provided. And so we again will uh, give you somewhat of a review uh, and do so as briefly as I'm able to review up to this point in verse 17 where we have reached this morning. It's interesting to note as well, when we go into, enter into verse 18, which we're not there yet, of course, but when we do enter into verse 18, it will be interesting to see that the matter, though, though the, the emphasis shifts somewhat in Paul's writing, it still is in continuation of this truth that we are engaged in spiritual warfare that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And he continues this thought to a degree, though he's shifting somewhat from the armor itself. Then then he moves on to prayer, of course, praying for himself as well, uh, that that the church would pray for him in verse 19. And so we see that the matter of spiritual warfare continues to be uh, present in Paul's writing, but yet it moves forward from the armor into other areas and then concludes his epistle. So as we've seen clearly over the last several months in our study of even this portion of the text, Paul is making the church aware, reminding them of the truth of the attacks that they face daily, as do we as well. And there are two primary fronts of attack which we face, and we see that they are first, again, the attacks which come from within. James 1, 13 through 15, I've referenced this many times, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I won't spend the time to deal with those verses this morning, even as I have in previous weeks. But then the attacks which come from without, Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, 
and 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. And so we see, and those are only two examples, of course, of, of many you could see throughout Scripture. Paul commands the church at Ephesus, as we have seen, to stand. And this is a command to maintain the position that God has given them in Jesus Christ, as Paul clearly details in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. So again, everything Paul is stating in this portion of the text from chapter 4 on is all rooted in the truth of chapters 1 through 3, as I've explained many times to you. Paul further commanded the church to put on the armor. So he said to stand, to maintain the position. But then he says, put on the armor. So as we are maintaining this position, God has made provision for us to maintain the position. So the command is to maintain this position you've been given in Christ, but yet you can't do this on your own. And the attacks are constantly against you from within and as well from without coming against the, 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 the desire that we would have as believers to stand in the truth of Christ. And so we are to be aware of this truth of these attacks and our insufficiency or, or our inability to even fulfill this command. Remember, every command that God has ever given in His Word He has made provision already for that command to be realized in our lives. God never calls us to do something on our own, ever. We are always resting and trusting and working and living and, 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 if you will, standing in His power, in His sufficiency. So God isn't saying, do the best you can here and I'll, I'll pick up the slack. No, He's made the provision for us to maintain the position He's already provided us in Jesus Christ. So notice the greatness of God in this. He gave us the position in Christ. He has made us to be in Him. And and Christ is all of this unto us because we are in Him. He is in us. And then God also provides in Christ this provision, the means for us to maintain that position we've been given in Him, to continue to live in the truth of the sufficiency of Jesus and the victory that has been provided by God in our Savior. So we see that this command to stand, maintain the position, then the command to put on the armor, they go hand in hand. And God has made this provision so that we might daily clothe ourselves in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To put on the armor of light, or to put on the spiritual armor that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, is for one to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13, 12 and verse 14. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Then verse 14, he says just a verse later, he says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So where is our victory? It's in Christ. Putting on Christ prevents us from fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, whether they be taxed from without or taxed from within. So we must remember these two truths as we read and study this portion of this epistle. First, the armor is not a provision made for us in addition to Jesus. But the armor is provided by God in Jesus Christ. And second, number two, God's command for us to stand and put on the armor is not a command for us to fight for victory, but this is God's provision for us to realize or experience the victory He has already provided us in Jesus Christ. So, we've seen stand, maintain your position in God's provision of His truth. Stand, maintain your position in God's provision of His righteousness. Stand, maintain your position in God's provision of His gospel of peace. Stand, maintain your position in God's provision of faith. And we are commanded, first of all, of course, to stand and then also stand, maintain your position in God's provision of salvation, as we've seen as well. And we are commanded first to stand in truth. Verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. And as we've seen, and I've I've dealt with this emphatically over the past several weeks, truth is the very foundation upon which we stand. And we're going to see that again as we close out Paul's listing of this provision of God's armor we're going to see the importance and significance of truth once again emphasized by Paul in the text as we get there this morning later in a few moments. 
Two, we are commanded to stand in righteousness. Verse 14 goes on to say, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. So God has clothed us, he's covered us, he's protected us in the very righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61.10, the writer Paul refers to Isaiah 59, Isaiah 61 in this letter. But Isaiah 61.10, the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. So here again we see the beauty of this righteousness that's been imputed unto us. We are protected, we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We've dealt with this several weeks back in our, in our theology class on Tuesday nights, but concerning justification, again, it's not that God has just made my sin right with Him, God has made me right with Him. It's not just God who says, oh, it's as though you'd never sinned. That would be innocence. Rather, God has said, you are righteous in Jesus Christ. Look, here's the reality of it. Are you ready? I am guilty. And there's no way around that. I am guilty. I have sinned. I am still guilty because I do sin. But I don't have to live and bear the weight of that guilt because I've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. It's not that I don't have guilt. It's not that I am innocent. It's that I've been declared righteous in Him because He is righteous. And He is in me and I am in Him. And so there's victory in that truth, obviously. Third, we are commanded to stand in the gospel of peace. Verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Interesting, isn't it, that this follows righteousness? I've been declared righteous, and yet I'm guilty, and yet I'm at perfect peace with God because of Jesus Christ. And so because of his righteousness, I am at peace with him. He is, there's no enmity between us anymore. It's been eradicated through the cross of Christ. And the, he says in verse 15, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This command in verse 15 is also rooted in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah Isaiah 52, 7, and Romans also 10, 15, Paul references these verses. This good news of peace provides us confidence and stability in a world of uncertainty because we are standing rooted in the truth that we have peace with God. Despite the conflict that goes around, around about us, despite the attacks that come upon us, despite the sinful flesh, which that, the, the desire, sinful fleshly desire that exists within us, we are at peace with God. And that's not because we're innocent. That's because we are righteous in Christ. Then fourth, we are commanded to stand in faith. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Faith is the means provided by God which we believe God. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith. Although we are aware of the enemy, we are privy to his many methods of attack. We are aware of them. Again, we can never know when or from where the attacks may come. That's what catches us up off guard in many cases. And it's only by faith, believing God and His Word, that we are protected from the many, many attacks of the enemy. Again, when Paul was attacked, to give an example, when Paul was beaten, when Paul was uh, persecuted and, and suffered great things, and he says, oh, these are light things compared to the weight of glory which God is working, which one day will be revealed. Paul understood that there was victory, and he was believing God despite the absolute horrid circumstances he found himself in in those moments. He's simply believing God. That's faith. Faith is believing God. Not just believing in God, not just believing God exists, it's believing God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so we understand it's believing God, actually believing him. Wherewith, he says, you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The very thing which the enemy attacks is the one provision we are given that is victorious over the enemy and his attacks. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Faith is the means by which we are provided and daily experience the victory we have been given in Jesus Christ. Look, we stand in truth, we stand in righteousness, we stand in peace with God, but remember something. The whole purpose of the enemy is to distract us from those truths and cause our mind and heart, if you will, to wonder from this reality that is true in Christ. And so faith is the only means to overcome that. Believing God despite how we feel, believing God despite what it may appear to look as though it is, it's knowing that God is true regardless. God is right, God is true, and this faith is the victory that we have. We are commanded, fifth, to stand in salvation, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The heart of man is referred to within Scripture as I dealt with last week and explained to you is used in reference to the mind or the innermost part of one's being. As we have previously discovered in our studies within this verse, Paul is referencing Isaiah's prophecy, which he also does in verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Remember, we read a moment ago in chapter 61 of Isaiah, in verse 10, where it says, He hath clothed me in the garments of salvation and in the robe of robes of righteousness, or robe of righteousness. So the garments of salvation, the helmet of salvation. And the enemy's desire, as I mentioned a moment ago, is to turn our minds and our hearts away from the Lord in His truth. It's to distract us from the truth of the victory that we've already been provided. It's to cause us to believe the temporal supersedes the eternal. And we must realize it's always the eternal which supersedes the temporal. Just like it's always the spiritual that supersedes the physical. That's why Paul again could say in Corinthians that this is a light, light thing. This is a light suffering compared to the eternal. What is he saying? He's saying, oh, this is a temporal, physical suffering that I am experiencing. But in, in regards or in, in, in contrast to that, that which is spiritual and that which is eternal, he says all of these things are minuscule. These things mean nothing. And he suffered greatly. For the cause of Christ. Even God said that to Ananias, as I mentioned a week ago, I believe, that he says, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Speaking of Paul. So Paul suffered tremendously for the cause of Christ, but yet that was all physical. It was all temporal. And Paul realized that because he understood, believing God, that the spiritual and the eternal supersedes that which is physical and temporal. Would God help us to have that understanding and that mindset? That would change the way that we deal with suffering, whether it be physical sufferings or, or persecution. And you say persecution, we're not really persecuted. Well, remember, the word persecution, all that live godly, Paul said, shall suffer persecution. Remember that? All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And persecution there, it doesn't mean you're being beaten physically necessarily, though it can include that. But it's saying that there's going to be opposition. That there's going to be opposition. And if you are in the faith and you are walking in faith and by faith and you are declaring the gospel, you are walking by the, in the sufficiency of Jesus, you are going to be opposed. There's no two ways about that. And the extent or the magnitude of the opposition may vary, and it does greatly. There are still those even today who are literally giving their lives for the cause of, cause of Christ, literally being, being martyred for the cause of Christ. That's happening. That's tremendous persecution. But you, if you are in Christ, you suffer persecution as well because you are being enemy all the time. And the very cause and faith in which you stand is being attacked by the enemy all the time. And that's what we, we must be reminded. And so the enemy's desire is to turn our hearts and our minds away from the Lord and His truth. Theologically, salvation is a blanket term which includes, and just briefly, deliverance, redemption, reconciliation, 
justification, sanctification, and glorification, just to name a, a, a brief survey. We have a confident expectation in this salvation God has provided us in Jesus Christ. And we are secure in Him, for it is Christ who is the very anchor of our souls. So we can stand firm. We can stand sure. We can maintain the position when it is Christ in whom we stand, and it is Christ who is within us. (laughs) Number five, we are commanded to stand in the Scriptures. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is the last of the elements or pieces of this armor which Paul has listed within this detailed list. There are several things for us to consider concerning Paul's reference to the Word of God in this manner. First, Paul refers to God's Word as the sword. Now, this is the only offensive weapon listed within this entire list of God's provision of armor. And it is not by chance that Paul refers to the other elements of this armor in a defensive manner. Consider this with me for a moment. While truth is truth, one of the many or one of the reasons so many people today embrace their version of truth referred to as my truth or their truth is due to the rejection of absolute truth. Now you can declare absolute truth, you can stand on absolute truth. But you have to understand men are still going to reject absolute truth and therefore they have their own truth. And, and one of the things, I'll say this up front, one of the things that you will find you will never successfully be able to argue against unless God just intervenes in the situation, you will never be able to argue against someone's experiences. People experience things. You can say, hey, this is true and tell them, but if they have their perception of their experience and, and they'll say things to you like, well, you don't know, you just weren't there. Yeah, but I don't have to be there to know what truth is, because truth has been declared. So truth is is not arbitrary at all. Truth is absolutely objective. Truth is absolute. However, people will claim they have their truth, or my truth, which is not based on absolute truth at all, because I'll tell you right now, the truth upon which I stand is not my truth, it's God's truth. So I don't have a truth. All I have is God's truth. That God's truth is the truth. But men will argue that. Righteousness is not arbitrary any more so than truth. However, if one rejects the very person of true righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, then one is left to interpret righteousness on personal terms, on their own personal terms or agenda. Again, going to my truth. For instance, Jesus alone is righteous. We are only righteous because he has been made our righteousness. We are righteous in Him, but we have no righteousness, correct? But yet, if you reject the true person of righteousness, then you are now defining righteousness on your own terms, such as your good works, your faithfulness to church, your ministries, whatever it may be. Now, righteousness is defined by my own definition rather than true righteousness, which is Christ. The gospel of peace, the good news of God's provision of peace for us is only in the person of Jesus Christ. However, when one rejects the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then peace with God is relative to one's experience rather than through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many people believe that they are at peace with God because, again, of things they do of their own righteousness because they've rejected truth and they're living their lives according to their own truth, as they would claim? Are you following this? And therefore, because of this, now, oh, I have peace with God. I'm, I'm, you know, people say things like this. Oh, I pray every day. And? 
What difference does that make? If you don't have peace with God through Jesus Christ, why are you praying? And people believe that they're okay. It's okay. You know, people make, oh, God and me, we're tight. You know, that, no. What are you talking about? Peace comes through Christ alone. The good news of the gospel, the gospel or good news of peace, is the peace that is made with God by Jesus Christ. Then you have faith. And faith obviously is not subjective at all. For we are commanded to contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. However, due to man's rejection of God's truth, anyone can claim to possess faith, regardless of the absence of the transforming power of the gospel's presence or faith acting within that life. Everyone claims they have faith. Do they not? Everyone claims they have faith. In fact, you hear people talk about, oh, well, they're just of a different faith. What do you, what do you mean? In, in Jude, we're told we're to, want, we're to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. What's that, what that means, it's the faith, not your faith. It is the faith, the truth of God as it has been absolutely delivered unto the people of God. This is the faith. And there's not variations of that. Now, we have misunderstandings of things without question. We differ on secondary, tertiary issues with other believers without question. But when we're talking about the faith, what are the truths or what are the, the, the fundamentals, if you will, of the very faith? Obviously that God is. Jesus is the Son of God, the deity of Jesus Christ. He literally physically came, physically lived, physically died, physically rose again. It is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone that we are redeemed. Nothing else, nothing plus minus nothing. And so we understand that there are these fundamentals, if you will, of the faith. And we embrace these live in these. And, and, and so faith in anything other than that which is in Christ is not biblical, genuine faith at all. And, and this has been so perverted and so mis, mis, misunderstood and misconstrued today that people call their desires faith, or they call their empty or their empty hopes, if you will, that which they hope for, I mean, they call this their faith. Well, I just have faith. Yeah, I have faith this is going to happen. Well, if God didn't say it's going to happen then you shouldn't be trusting that it's going to happen or resting in the truth that it will happen because it's not necessarily going to happen. Our faith is in what God has said. Remember I said a moment ago, faith is belief. It's believing God. And so if I have faith in something, I'm believing what God has said about this, not hoping, desiring something will come out of this that I wish for or long for. So we understand then that people claim to have faith, and yet the reality is that due to man's rejection of God's truth, this claim to faith is considered to be valid by many, despite the fact that there's no evidence of that of genuine faith in their life which will transform them. Then salvation. Salvation is in Jesus alone. However, when men reject God's provision of true salvation in Jesus Christ, they are left to their own feeble efforts to save themselves. Again, they then determine what righteousness is. Why? Because they've rejected truth. They claim that their salvation is really that of work, so they may not even say that. That's how they live. And they are, of course, declare they have peace with God based on their own experiences. And they claim that they are, of course, uh, standing in truth, but it's not absolute truth. It's their version of truth, if you will, which is not truth at all, unless it's aligned with God's truth. And so what we see here is the point being made and explaining all this again to you, is that each one of the defensive elements of this armor is rooted in truth. Without truth, 
one can claim his own version of this armor even. And that's exactly what happens. The difficulty in defending these individual truths is that one's argument has the potential of becoming completely subjective since none of these previous elements of this armor are physical or tangible in nature. Understand what I'm saying to you, please. Let's consider this for a moment. Truth is not tangible. Can you see truth? Can you feel truth? Can you touch truth? Righteousness is not tangible. Can you see righteousness? Can you touch righteousness? Can you give somebody righteousness? The gospel of peace is not tangible. Peace with God is not something you can touch or feel in the sense of, I can experience peace with God, which produces feelings in me, yes, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying it's not something you can reach out and put your hands on. Faith is not tangible. Now, people think it's tangible when they say, I have faith, I'm going to get this car. That's not tangible faith. Faith is not tangible. It's not something you can touch. It's not something you have before you. It's not something you can see. And salvation is not tangible. We experience salvation and redemption being born again, but you can't touch salvation. You can't feel salvation in the sense of something you can reach out and grab a hold of in that sense. Does salvation change our feelings? Of course it does. But I'm not speaking of the emotional aspect here, but rather saying it's not something that is tangible. It's not something we see. It's not something that we can grab a hold of physically. And so understand, all of these truths in which we stand can be argued by anyone, even people talking about the same, or or it sounds like they're talking about the same thing when they're really not, because they have a version of truth or what have you. And so these things are not tangible. They're not things that we can put our hands on. They are real. They're true. Absolutely. But yet, look how people could argue and fight against these realities because it's not something that is presentable. Something you can say, here it is, and show. So one can claim their truth, in other words, as absolute truth. One can claim their works as good and righteous. One can claim they are at peace with God based on a supposed relationship with God apart from Jesus who's the only way to God. One can claim they possess faith. Yet, saving faith is the faith of Jesus alone. And one can claim salvation, yet possess absolutely no evidence of salvation as defined by Scripture. However, and follow me all the way through in this, please, whenever speaking of God's Word... There is no room for subjectivity. God's Word is tangible. Is it not? God's Word is tangible in that it is something that we can hold in our hands. We can read, we can study, and its truth is unchanging. Therefore, although many people interpret God's Word in different manners, that's true, and although there are gray areas, such as in the case of, as is the case of eschatology, where things are not clearly defined in Scripture for us, or at least our understanding of what is defined is not clearly understood. The truths of God's Word are absolute and remain the same for everyone who reads it. While men will argue the validity of God's Word, they will do that, and even attempt to subjectify the Scriptures again, acting as though the Scriptures are meant for, uh, to add to their life as some accessory. I, I equate it to this, as a lady might stand before the mirror and to see which necklace or earrings look best with the outfit she's wearing. That's how many people view the Word of God. 
for the day. Oh, today I'm going to get up and let's see what verse I need to take and apply today to my life. And they accessorize their life with Scripture. But that's not what Scripture is. It is the Scriptures which defend themselves, even though they are attacked, even though they are not believed, even though they are argued against. One who is skillful in the Scriptures can use the Scriptures to expose man's failed attempt to disregard the truth of God's Word. Now again, I cannot convince anyone of God's truth spiritually. God's Spirit must do that within them. But I can go to the Scriptures and show the Scriptures to be true and explain how they are true from the Scriptures themselves and as well even by the outside evidence. Now, while we know that one will only believe by the working of the Spirit of God, the Scriptures remain absolute in their testimony, and God's Word will stand the test of time despite the unbelief of men. Here's the point. This is the sword. It's the only offensive weapon that is mentioned. Why is that so? Because the fact of the matter is, the Word of God is the Word of God is the Word of God. And it is tangible. We have something before us which we can say, look, here it is. This isn't about my experience. This is about how I feel. This isn't about my emotions. This is truth. Now, men will still reject that truth, but hear me. They're not contending or arguing with your emotions. They're arguing with the truth of the Word of God, which has and will stand the test of time. They won't believe. I understand that. But the sword will still do its work either way. It will either, the Word of God will either condemn them, convict them, or convert them. But it's going to do its job. Remember what Isaiah's, in Isaiah's prophecy, and this is concerning the redemptive work of God. And Isaiah says, His ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But remember what he said, His word will not return void, it shall accomplish that thing whereunto. He hath sent it. So God's Word is going to accomplish its work according to His will. Now, I can argue my beliefs. I can argue my experience of salvation. I can tell people all of these things. And that's wonderful, but hear me. The the one thing that's going to do the job it's meant to do is the Word of God. And this is the offensive weapon we have. This is what we have to say, look, here it is. It's not a matter of what I think or believe, it's what God has said. And therefore, it behooves us to be wise in the Scriptures, does it not? To be rooted in the Scriptures, to be grounded in the Scriptures. And might I say, I think that most today are much more concerned with defense than offense in the sense of taking the Word of God to maintain their position. We maintain the position in Christ, but then we maintain the position explaining this to others through the truth of the Word of God. And the enemy attacks, but we have the Word of God. And so we stand firm in the truth of the Scriptures. But Paul didn't only refer to this as the sword. Notice what he also says. The sword is of the Spirit. Now this is interesting, because he says the sword of the Spirit, which of course is stating it is of the Spirit. In other words, hear me closely please, this is not your sword. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? This is not... Your Bible. This is not your word. Whose word is it? It's God's word. Whose sword is it? It's the Spirit's sword. Now, why is this important? Well, here's why. Paul is not claiming that we are to wield the Scriptures 
as though it is our sword, but rather we are equipped with the sword of the Spirit, which therefore is to be used in the power of the Spirit who lives within us. So this is not meant for you to learn a bunch of Bible verses so you can go out and try to combat every opposition that exists. No, this is for you to have discernment of the Spirit who lives within you and be rooted and grounded in the truth of the Scriptures that He might use the Scriptures through you. The sword of the Spirit is powerful, not only against the, attack, the attacks of the enemy from without, but as well in conquering the constant attack which pl- takes place within us. In Hebrews, the writer declared, Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing sunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What is he saying here? He's saying it pierces within, it looks within, it cuts within, it cuts out that that which shouldn't be. So this is talking about the conflicts that are taking place within us. Not only is this an offensive weapon in the sense of the attacks of the world that come against us, but might I say most importantly, it is the Word of God is offensive in that it is the Spirit of God using the Word of God to cut out from us everything that shouldn't be there. So this isn't you wielding the Scriptures around. This is the Spirit using the Scriptures. First and most importantly, in your own life. And then secondarily, in your position of standing in the truth. It's interesting that the context of this verse, verse chapter 4, verse 12, is surrounded by the exhortation for us to labor to rest in God's provision of Jesus Christ. In other words... We are not to fight our own battles, but we are to rest in God's provision of victory for us in Jesus Christ, as we've seen consistently throughout the study of Ephesians chapter 6. So let's read Hebrews 9 through 4, chapter 4, verses 9 through 14 now, instead of just verse 12. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Let us labor to rest. That sounds so contradictive, but it's really not. The issue is we don't want to rest. And so he's saying labor to rest. Our our struggle is resting. That's what he's saying. He goes on to say, Let us labor therefore to rest, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, listen, listen to the next statement. Let us hold fast our profession. Do you understand what he just said? Let us hold fast our profession. Do you understand what he just said? The same thing Paul is stating in Ephesians 6. Maintain the position. Hold fast the profession of what? Faith. Profession of Christ. So we hold fast. We maintain the position. And what is it that helps that to continue that? The Word of God piercing even our very being. Knowing the intents and thoughts of our heart, our mind. Working to root out that which is not Christ-like working to root out all that which would hinder us in resting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's the context here. 
However, the only way we can learn to rest in the sufficiency of God in Christ as He's been provided is that we know the truth and are rooted in the truth of God's provision for us. And this, of course, is only realized in the revelation of Jesus throughout the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, and that is to be diligent. The word study here means to be diligent. So he's saying be diligent to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we are to be diligent in the Scriptures. How can we maintain a position when we don't even really understand the position we are maintaining? Think of that for a moment. Again, if you take Ephesians chapter 6 and you just try to teach this passage, or preach this passage, isolated from chapters 1 through 6 verse 9, then you have no understanding. You, you have a generalized understanding, a generalization, but you really have no understanding of what's being stated here. So how are we to maintain a position if we don't know anything about the position, if we don't know anything about the one in whom we stand? So as we learn more of Christ, and this is what happens, I think I mentioned this a week or so ago to you, but as we stand more in Christ, as we learn more of Christ, as we grow more in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, it causes us, to see all the more how dependent we truly are upon Him. But in light of seeing our need to depend and necessity of dependence upon Him, we also are reminded of how He is all-sufficient, despite how insufficient we are. Maintain the position of faith in the truth of God as Jesus is revealed within and throughout His Word. We can stand on God's Word, for it is absolute, it is unchanging. And as we read in the Psalm, Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. God's truth is absolute. It is unchanging. And though men will argue, they will debate, they will disregard, they will, they will not believe, God's Word, God has given us a tangible thing, a tangible means by which this provision cuts out that which is not pleasing to Him within our own lives. Remember Jesus in John 17, 17 stated this in His high priestly prayer, in His prayer of intercession on our behalf. He said, sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart unto you. Separate them from sin. How? By thy truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. And so this sword is not your sword, it's the Spirit's sword, which primarily is being used to cut and root out of you all that is not resting and trusting in Him. And then again, we have a tangible sword. Something we hold in our hands, something we can read and study and commit ourselves to that is also to be used as the enemy would attack, we can declare God's truth. Not based on our understanding. It isn't based on understanding the truth of God's Word, but I'm saying it's not based on our experience, understanding of our experiences. It's based on something that is absolute, and that is the Word of God. So maintain the position in the Scriptures. Stand in the Scriptures. Allow the Spirit to sanctify you through the Scriptures. But even for that to take place, we have to know them. We have to understand them. We have to be committed to them. We must be diligent. 
in the scriptures that they continue by God's Spirit to transform us, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. I believe we could agree with Paul. While he suffered much persecution, while he suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, he said all these things are just light, light affliction, but for a moment, compared to the eternal weight of glory. But then you come to Romans chapter 7. You know what Paul says? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Are, Are you understanding the connection I'm making here? Paul suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. And you know what Paul considered his greatest fight and enemy to be? Himself. So the sword of the Spirit is not for you to wield around. It's the Spirit sword that's cutting away in you. Because the greatest enemy is not the attack of the gospel from without. The greatest enemy is a sinful, fleshly nature that exists within every single one of us. Because remember, by the way, we may not experience a visible, vocal, outward attack every day, at least not to great magnitude, but you are experiencing the attack of your sinful flesh every single day. So may we stand in the Scriptures. Maintain the position you've been given in the Scriptures. Allow submissively for God's Spirit to work in you, to consecrate, to sanctify, separate you unto Christ all the more, and that we are resting and trusting totally in the sufficiency of His provision. And notice the connection to truth, but notice the connection to Jesus. I told you, these aren't in addition to Jesus. This, these, aren't, these aren't elements God's given us, pieces of armor in addition to Jesus. This is God's provision of Jesus. Since put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. Did he not? He's true. He is the truth. Also, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, If any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He has reconciled. The gospel of peace is the reconciliation of man to God. He has eradicated all the enmity that existed through through His cross, the Scripture says. The faith in Christ, faith in God, is faith of Jesus Christ. Galatians makes it very clear. Salvation. Jesus is salvation. He doesn't just give salvation. He is salvation. Are you understanding? Everything mentioned here is not only based and rooted in truth, it's explaining who Jesus truly is and the provision of Christ unto us.